Several years ago, a research study invited a group of people to spend 15 minutes alone with their thoughts and their feelings and desires. Participants were asked to spend the time without phones or any other external stimuli. And the one rule was they had to remain seated and awake. And the only entertainment they were given was one small button. Participants were warned that the button, when it was pressed, would give them a small electric shock. Before the study began, every member of the group had indicated that they would pay money to avoid a similar shock. However, the study showed that given the option of sitting in silence or shocking themselves, 67% of men and 25% of women (laughs) self-administered the electric shock. And this is what the researchers concluded. People prefer doing to thinking or feeling, even if what they are doing is so unpleasant that they would normally pay to avoid it. This is the human condition. The human desire for action drives our lives, particularly in the West. I wonder if we replicated that study in this church this morning, if we'd see the same thing here when it comes to our prayer lives. We'd prefer action rather than sitting in silence and listening. We'd prefer shocking ourselves rather than sitting alone with God with just our thoughts and our feelings and our desires. Today we're continuing our series on becoming a house of prayer, looking together over this season at what it looks like to grow deeper in a life of prayer. And um, for the last several weeks, we've been talking about this journey of prayer. And one way to sort of picture this, a wonderful book by a guy named Mark Thibodeau, a Catholic writer, uh, he talks about a sort of progression of prayer. And that's sort of the big kind of framework that we've used for this series of how we learn to communicate with God through prayer. And the basic four movements are talking to God, right? It's sort of like learning a language, right? A kid learns by babbling and talking to or talking at other people. Talking with God, where there's actually interaction, that's what we spent the first couple of weeks essentially working through with the Lord's Prayer. And then these last two weeks, we're gonna look at uh, uh, forms of prayer that may be less familiar to some of us, especially in the American church, listening to God, and then being with God next week. So today we wanna talk about listening to God, and next week we're gonna talk about being with God. Now, listening prayer, which is what listening to God has sort of been called classically, Um, is not something in my tradition. I became a Christian as a teenager, and um, we were very wordy in our prayers, lots of talking at God, but I I really didn't practice listening prayer until really the last 10 or 12 years. And um, and so this this one's new to me, but I would say these last two have been the most transformational in my own sort of personal journey with prayer. And so I'm excited this week to share that Next week, we'll have a guest to come and teach, teach us about being with God, or what we call contemplative prayer. And so let's turn together to Acts 13, to our passage from this morning, and let's look at this text on listening prayer. We have a great example of that here in the book of Acts. Luke writes, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and he gives this list of some of those leaders. This passage in Acts 13 is a window into a truly incredible moment in the life of the early church. Just a little context here of what I would call 
uh, a listening church. I think that's, that's a good moniker for the early church, a listening church. Antioch is this strategic city in the Roman Empire. It's the third largest city. Think like Chicago, you know, New York, LA, Chicago. It's the capital of Syria. It's this diverse urban center at the crossroads of basically Palestine, Africa, Asia, and Europe. So it sits at the center of these different cultural contexts. So revival breaks out. A large group of people turn to Jesus. You can read about that story in Acts chapter 11. And Antioch becomes the first multicultural expression of Christianity. It's the place where they're first called Christians, which is a term that's only used two times, I think, in the book of Acts. Christianioi is the, is the word there in the Greek. And they're called Christians, not because of uh, their clothes or what, you know, whatever the food that they eat. They're called Christians because their religion wasn't just an outgrowth of their culture, like this is what Americans do, or their ethnicity, this is what Chinese people do or Japanese people do. It's just the religion that's sort of tied to their ethnicity. Now you have a group of people coming together from diverse backgrounds. You have Jews and Africans and Asians. You have in this list here of teachers, people drawn from the upper classes of society and the lower classes. You have the educated and the uneducated. You have governing officials and you have just ordinary citizens all together in leadership in the early church. Now pay attention to what happens next. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So Antioch is this key turning point in the book of Acts. This gathering that we're reading about here is the seed for a movement of the Holy Spirit that literally turns the Roman world upside down. Down And just in a few short centuries, over half of the Roman Empire will be Christians. So what do we learn about the dynamics of the church in Antioch for our topic of listening prayer today? Two things that I want you to see. The first dynamic we see here in this passage is that this group of disciples believed that God still speaks. One of the fundamental realities of the Christian God that, that sets him apart from other gods is that God is not just an idea or an ideology. He's not just a philosophy. He's not a force or an energy. He is a living, breathing person who speaks. And the expectation of these disciples rooted in this ancient tradition was that the same God who spoke the universe into existence who spoke to their ancestors in very personal ways about life and grace and faith and salvation and he gave them promises and he spoke to them prophetic words and he spoke to them about eternity and judgment and laws and money and housing and clothing and children and desires and emotions. The same God who spoke to Israelite, both the Israelites and to pagan kings who spoke to both the powerful and the powerless, and who speaks most fully through the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. This same God is still speaking, and he's still communicating his heart and his mind to his people. Hebrews 1 says it like this. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And that word refers to Jesus himself. So the question for them was never, is God speaking? But what is God saying? And are they listening and responding? And it's the same question for us. It's never a matter of, is God speaking? God is always speaking. The question is, are we listening? Have we put ourselves in a position to listen and respond? The second dynamic we see here in the early church was that they cultivated rhythms for listening to God's voice. Notice that this group of disciples was devoted, is the word that that Luke uses throughout the book of Acts, devoted to regular rhythms of worship and prayer and fasting. Now, they weren't innovating anything new here, right? They were simply continuing an ancient pattern set by their ancestors, You see, worship and prayer and fasting were core practices at the heart of Jewish identity and spirituality. For thousands of years, every Jewish person would have grown up praying the Shema three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. This prayer, the Shema, is taken from Deuteronomy chapter six. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'll throw it up on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses five through six. This is the fundamental prayer that anchored the life of the Hebrew people. Hear, O Israel. In Hebrew, this is Shema Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And of course, we know this is what Jesus borrows from. And he says, this is the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. And this word Shema has a double meaning. It can be translated hear or listen and also to obey. Those concepts are really one and the same in Hebrew. Listen or listen and obey is one of the most frequent invitations to God's people in the Bible. It's mentioned some 1,500 times throughout the scriptures. So right from the beginning, God is establishing the priority of his people organizing their lives around listening to and obeying God's voice. Every day, they were invited to curate intentional time and space to remove themselves to step back from the noise and the clutter and the obligations of society. And through these practices, enter a portal where their minds, their hearts, their bodies could quiet down in God's presence. And they could open themselves to God. And they could attune themselves to hearing his voice. This is the basic rhythm of discipleship. God speaks and we listen. It's like two pedals of a bike. It's like breathing in, just take a deep breath in and take, literally do that right now, take a deep breath in, take a deep breath out. This is the rhythm of discipleship. God speaks and we receive and we listen. We are formed from and by God's voice and God's word. This has always been the vision of discipleship, right? The basic posture of a disciple, you could say the word disciple means learner or student or apprentice. The basic posture of a disciple disciple is a listener. 
It's the spirit of Samuel when God speaks to him in 1 Samuel 3. This should be the spirit and the desire and the aim for every disciple, right? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, 1 Samuel 3.10. Here I am, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so it's no surprise when Jesus begins his ministry in the New Testament, he continued to emphasize the centrality of listening for God's people. Jesus himself spent time each day in prayer, listening for the voice of the Father so that he could obey his will. Jesus calls his first disciples and he says, listen and follow me. And remember when Jesus was teaching, he would often punctuate the conclusion to his teachings, echoing the words of Israel's ancient prophets. Let those who have ears to hear or listen Listen and obey. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 10, my sheep listen to my voice. To be a disciple is to be one listening for the voice of God. It was said of Jesus' disciple Mary that she sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Sitting at the feet of a rabbi was just an idiom for being a disciple. Sitting at his feet, listening. So what he had to say. We see this listening posture throughout the book of Acts, right? We have one example here in Acts 13, but you see this <clears throat> all throughout, where disciples set aside time to listen for God in prayer, and then they get up and take action. I'll give you a couple of examples on the screen. Acts chapter eight, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go, and he went. In Acts chapter nine, the Lord said to Ananias, go, get up and go, and he went. In Acts chapter 10, the Spirit said to Peter, get up and go, are you seeing this rhythm? Get up and go. And Peter got up and went. There was something happening where they were listening to God in prayer, and the Spirit of God was speaking to them in a way they could hear and obey. Now, why is it so important that we learn to cultivate rhythms and a lifestyle of prayerfully listening and attuning ourselves to God's voice. Why is it so important for you that you pay attention, that you don't just get up and go through your day on autopilot, but you take time to intentionally listen for God's voice? Because here's the thing, if we're honest, for most of us listening to God, it sounds kind of weird, okay, first off, right? Especially if you're not like a churchy person, I realize what I'm saying right now sounds super weird, okay? Um, and if we do listen to God, it's something we do occasionally, like maybe the first thing in the morning uh, with a cup of coffee um, or the last thing at night before we sort of fall asleep. So we do it maybe occasionally or we do it strategically, right? We're all about being strategic as, as Americans. And so when we have a major decision looming about a job, we're like, I'm gonna listen for the voice of God. Or when we're trying to date somebody, all of a sudden we get really spiritual and it's not weird to listen for God's voice. God, do you want me to date this person or not? Do you want me to marry this person or not? But we typically do it when we're scared, right? Or we're uncertain and we don't know what to say. We feel powerless. Usually those are the times when we, we listen for God. But it's not a lifestyle. Now that's not bad. Right? It's not bad to listen occasionally or strategically, but it's not enough. Right? It's not enough. And let me give you two reasons why that will not work in the long haul if you want a rich, full life with God. First reason 
is that we are always being formed by listening to other voices, right? Every day you are listening to voices, who we become actually in the long run is shaped by the voices we choose to listen to and internalize, and you could say obey. And there are so many competing voices, right? So much noise happening around us. This week, I was out in Los Angeles with my sons. I was so wonderful, 75 degree. I, I was like, why do we live in Indiana? What, what happened? How do we all end up in Indiana? But it was beautiful. And I took my sons to Universal Studios, Hollywood. We had been to the one in Orlando. And the one in Hollywood has Super Nintendo Land, which I was stoked about. It's like a year old, and you go through, you go through this pipe, and it's like I'm hearing the noises from you know, Mario World dun, 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 as we go through the pipe. And we come out, and we see this. And it's like this little space that's like in the shape of like a square. And literally, I mean, you walk in and it is overwhelming. You all of a sudden find yourself in this really tight, confined, almost claustrophobic. And there's just voices, Mario, Luigi, Princess Peach. I mean, just stuff coming at you everywhere. And as I was thinking about this sermon, I was like, this is what it's like to live in the world. It's like Super Nintendo land. There's just voice, and we just get used to it. But like, any of you grew up, anybody grew up on a farm in Indiana somewhere, like a small town? There are places where it's not like, it's okay, you don't have to be embarrassed. Like, <laughs> it's okay, it's a safe place. Like, if you get out into the country, you know, and it's really quiet, and it's really dark, like, you forget that that's actually a life that's possible when you live in the city, just full of noise all the time. We're surrounded by all of these voices, and they're shaping us, and they're forming us. There are voices from our past that continue to live on in us, right? From our family of origin, our parents, our siblings, our coaches, our teachers, our childhood enemies, people that we dated, people who betrayed us. There are voices inside of us from our own desires, our own thoughts, our own feelings and impulses and attachments and, and scripts, so the stories that guide our lives. And then, of course, there are all kinds of external voices in our present. Social psychologists call our cultural moment the attention economy. Every day we are bombarded with voices clamoring for our time, for our money, our imagination, our attention, our affections. And all of this is happening mostly subconsciously or unconsciously and instantaneously. We don't even recognize that it's happening. We're just bombarded with messaging from podcasters and pundits and thought leaders and digital marketers and therapists and celebrities with platforms. And all of this just sort of gets, like seeps into our imagination, into our mind, into our bodies. And then all of a sudden it's hard to tell like whose voice am I actually listening to? And here's the, here's the reality for a disciple. We've gotta recognize that we're being formed by those voices. And then we have got to learn to step back to hear the signal of God's voice in the midst of the noise. I love the way that Henry Nouwen talks about this. He says, many voices ask for our attention. There is a voice that says, prove that you are a good person. Another voice says, you better be ashamed of yourself. There's also a voice that says, nobody really cares about you. And one that says, be sure to become successful, popular, and powerful. But underneath all these often very noisy voices is a still small voice that says, you are my beloved and my favor rests on you. 
That's the voice we need most of all to hear. To hear that voice, however, requires special effort. It requires solitude, silence, and a strong determination to listen. That's what prayer is. It is listening to the voice that calls us, my beloved. There's a second reason. Not only are we formed by voices all the time, but listening and loving are intertwined. I I, I truly believe it was the deep listening of the disciples that we see here in places like Acts 13 that gave them the clarity and the boldness to sacrificially love others despite constant opposition and suffering. Listening reminded them of their true identity and calling in Christ, and it allowed them to see others through the lens of God's eternal perspective, not just the reactivity and their attempts to oppress them. You see, every day, we are confronted with dozens of interruptions, surprises, and invitations in our relationships with God and other people. Like how many times do you wake up and some of you have like a habit maybe of like scheduling out your day if you're more type A, like me maybe? And I have my little monk manuals what I use for my day and I'm sort of charting out my day. And it's like I have my plan for the day and then there's life. And it just always gets in the way of my plans. It's so frustrating. Henry Nowen says that interruptions are often invitations from God. And, and I, I just wonder, how, it would, how would it change your relationships? How would it change how you approach your day, how you respond to people around you? If instead of resisting that and just moving through life on autopilot, reacting to what's happening around you, if we truly learn to stop and listen to what God wants to say to us about what's happening around us. So here's the reality. We can't learn to love others well if we don't learn to listen well. How you listen is how you love, or how you fail to listen is how you will fail to love. So that's why I think it's important for us to hear God's voice, but the question still remains, how do we do that, right? How do we hear God's voice? God doesn't speak audibly. God doesn't have a body with vocal cords that create audible sound waves. But here's the good news. God speaks in all kinds of ways that we may not be trained to recognize. And so we've got to train ourselves to hear the voice of God in all the ways that God wants to speak to us because he's speaking, but it may be that we just haven't learned to listen. So God speaks in a multiplicity of ways. If you read the story of scripture, and we don't have time to work through all these, but I just wanna put up on the screen a sampling of the different ways. You can take a picture of this, okay? It's one time in the sermon, it's okay to take a picture. Um, If you wanna just jot these down and come back to these, I put Bible references next to all of these for some of us that may be less familiar with these different ways that God speaks. But I wanna just take a few minutes and discuss some of the more common ways um, that we hear God's voice in Scripture, hear God's voice. The first way, and I would argue the primary way we hear God's voice is through Scripture. Scripture is the written story of some of God's speaking, some of God's words, given to his people both directly from him, from heaven, from his mouth, and also mediated through the minds and experiences of human authors. People often forget the backdrop to Acts 13 where God speaks to these disciples is Acts chapter 11, 
where Paul and Barnabas spend at least a year, Luke says, teaching scripture to the church before they then hear his voice speaking to them. Now, God doesn't say everything to us in scripture about life, but he does speak about the things that are most essential to a flourishing life with him. What Peter says, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so scripture is the ultimate authority by which we weigh other words, other voices, whether those be prophecies or visions or impressions or images or just the hunches of well-meaning friends. And and I wanna um, just commend to you that it's not just about reading scripture, which is important, but it's about developing a posture of listening to scripture that really makes the difference, has made a difference for me. Now, there's a place for reading and studying scripture, and learning is important, but we also need to listen to scripture because we don't just read scripture, scripture reads us. And it's one of the ways that God wants to speak to us. Not just, we don't just pull scripture open and break it apart and analyze it, we allow it to analyze us. And so we need to listen to scripture, not just come to it as a book with data points that need to be called and pulled and analyzed and sorted as if we're just accountants or something approaching the text, but we listen to scripture to encounter God, right? To encounter God, to grow in relational intimacy with him, not just to pull out principles that we can apply to our lives. And so when we come to scripture, it's important that we're careful that we don't read our distorted biases and assumptions into the text, that we don't manipulate scripture for our own purposes. And so we have to, of course, study, we have to reflect, we have to internalize scripture so that we can develop biblical instincts and a biblical imagination, not just rigid rules that arise from our own narrow cultural backgrounds. And what we do when we come to scripture listening is not searching for new meanings, right? We're not looking to uh, you know, uh, reinterpret scripture according to our cultural moment. What we're seeking is a fresh encounter with God that leads to fresh invitations for us in this cultural moment. And that's a huge difference, right? Reading for information versus reading for formation and transformation. Now, some Christians think that that's it, that God only speaks through scripture. But the interesting thing is if you read scripture itself, it says there are other ways that God speaks. So if you value scripture, listen to the ways that scripture talks about how God speaks to us. Another way that he speaks to us, and we see that here in this passage in Acts, is through our circumstances. When you read Acts, you'll notice that God often speaks in God's through the circumstances of our lives. He gives some general directions with maybe a next step or two, and then the disciples respond to these various opportunities and closed doors and limitations and surprising relationships and unexpected suffering, and even opens up opportunities for them to have favor with governing officials that they didn't expect. And so it's only by listening and then acting on and reflecting on their circumstances that they come to see the broader patterns of how God is speaking and moving. So it's not just like, hey, I sit in my prayer closet and God downloads his plan for me and then I go do it. It's like, hey, go, and then as you're going, right? I think of the Great Commission, go and make disciples. That word is as you are going, you will learn to discern God's will in his heart. Now, God is sovereign over the circumstances of our lives, but that doesn't mean that we are pre-programmed robots who just act out the script that he's downloaded into our bodies like some sort of Matrix movie. 
right? God often comes to us, as one author says, disguised as our lives. And we have to learn to pay attention to the reality of our circumstances and learn to see God coming to us in the circumstances of our lives. The third way God speaks is through a prophetic community. Through a prophetic community. In Acts 13, we see this community gathered together in the spirit to hear God's voice. They receive revelation, presumably through this prophetic leadership, directly from the spirit of God telling them what to do. We desperately need other people filled with God's spirit to hear his voice. That's what I mean by a prophetic community, a community of people filled with God's spirit, gathering together to hear God's voice. Now, sometimes this happens through prophecy and dreams and visions and impressions. And again, no prophecy sort of scares some of us. Maybe we had a bad experience with that in the past, or maybe we're afraid of having a bad experience with that in the future, whatever. But prophecy, by prophecy, I don't mean predicting the future, but speaking words that are given to us by the Spirit to other people for their strengthening, Corinthians says, for their encouragement and for their comfort. That's essentially prophetic words. Put simply, you pray over a person or a situation. You open your imagination to the Holy Spirit and you wait. You wait for a word, a picture, a metaphor, a scripture from God. And then you offer it up to them to be tested against scripture and against their experience. Paul tells us to eagerly desire the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 13. Some of us are like, open but skeptical. Paul says, eagerly desire the gift of prophecy. Lately, I've had this, uh, this kind of, um, this, several amazing experiences with this with some friends. Uh, there's something that I felt like God was moving me towards uh, in my own life, a gifting that had sort of been dormant, something that I was really thinking about, about maybe like a year and a half ago. And I didn't tell anybody about it, just sort of just started to pray about it and sort of read into it and really think about it and hold it before God in prayer. And without mentioning this to any of my friends, in the last six months, I've had three separate friends, none of them know each other, come to me and offer up just an encouragement specifically around this thing. And then uh, through some uh, prayer relationships that I have, two or three different prophetic words were spoken over me in prayer. Again, not told anybody, hadn't said anything about it, but if you, like God seems to be impressing this on me and I just wanna share this with you. And then I was literally sitting around with that group of friends last week. And again, one of my friends just spoke up and said, hey, I just feel this strong sense that God is, is, wants to encourage you to this. And, and he said something along the lines of, I wish you would take yourself as seriously as God takes you. And it was just like really encouraging me to step into this and lean into this gift. And it was just so encouraging, right? To know that like, this is something that God had been stirring in me. And then he was also stirring it up in friends. And, and here's the reality, because I, I share with them, um, it, it's not just about the doing of this thing, but there's an internal fear of doing this thing, a fear of being exposed, a fear of being vulnerable in this way that um, I, I really needed prayer for. Because it was like a deep, almost like I was realizing there's a wound here from the past that I hadn't really dealt with. And so that, these different communities of people laid hands on me and, and like God was giving them images. Like, I mean, crazy, I could tell you, this could be the rest of this, I just tell you like the metaphors and the pictures and the stories that were so specific and so detailed. And it's just so encouraging, like God, you're so kind 
to see me and to know exactly what I need and to bring this, because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a skeptic when it comes to this stuff anyways, and, and for God to bring it in so many different directions from so many different people was like, wow, God, this is clear that this is something that you're doing in my life, and I need to listen and obey. So sometimes that happens in sort of charismatic ways like that. Other times these insights just come through wise counsel and common sense, right? Sometimes it happens as we just gather with friends to study and to reflect and process together. There's wisdom that comes to us through just common sense and experience. But regardless of how revelation comes, what we never see in the Bible is an individual just listening to God and then making a big life or ministry decision alone by themselves. So I would encourage you, what we need is the wisdom and counsel of a diverse community to help us hear and obey God's voice. Proverbs 12 says, a fool's way is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. The fourth way and the final way that God speaks for our purposes here today is through our desires. Now I realize this is a difficult one for some of us. If you're like me, I grew up in a church tradition that taught us that desire is bad, feelings are bad, and our hearts can never be trusted. I'm sure some of you have memorized that great passage in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things. And and it's true, it's in the Bible. But there's other things in the Bible that the Bible says about our hearts. Like if you flip over a few more chapters in Jeremiah, it says that God, when he pours out his spirit, will write his laws on our hearts and will give us the ability to desire the right things. So we learn, maybe in different traditions, to repress or shut down our desires like a stoic. Others of us have been discipled by the gospel of our cultural moment, a gospel and ideology that says, follow your heart, you do you, be true to yourself. And so you've learned to just indulge all of your desires without discrimination and without restraint, like an addict. These are incomplete stories about desire. In the library of scripture, desire is far more nuanced and far more sophisticated than just to be all good or all bad. You see, God designed human beings with deep desires for life and for love. Desire is the the straw that stirs the drink for human beings. But the sickness of the human condition under sin means our desires contain both beauty and brokenness. Desires rightly reordered to loving God and loving other people can lead us to fulfill our design as human beings. While disordered desires bent towards selfishness can lead to destruction and exploitation. And so what we need is not the death of our desire, but more depth in our desire. We need God to awaken desire in us, not to shut down desire, not to indulge desire, but to awaken desire and aim it towards its true fulfillment in God. I love the way St. Augustine says this. The whole life, he's called the doctor of desire, right? He was like this crazy pagan who uh, just indulged all of his sexual desires and at the end of his journey to success and prosperity as a professor, sort of the seat of power, he realizes all these desires all along have been leading him to his desire for God. And he writes this, the whole life of the good Christian is a holy longing. That is our life, to be trained by God often begins speaking to us through our desires. 
In fact, our desires are often God's desires seated in us, coming to life in the light of God's indwelling presence through the Holy Spirit. Our desires for love, for sex, for beauty, for food, for pleasure, for friendship, for purpose, for meaning, can all be signals for God's voice, drawing us deeper in with him. Psalm 37.4 says, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. Now, read one way through our cultural moment, that could be follow your heart, do, you do you. But read in the way a Hebrew would read this, what he's saying is, God, would you desire your desires through me? Would you give me your desires? Help me to desire what you desire. So it's not killing desire, it's reordering our desire and aiming it towards God. And that's why Jesus, when he invites people into discipleship, one of the questions he asks throughout the book of John is not just like, what do you think about me? He never says that. What do you want is what Jesus says. That's the beginning question of discipleship. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And let me show you how following me will be a portal into having your deepest desires and longings fulfilled and satisfied in a way that only God can satisfy them. Now, let me circle back to our question from a few minutes ago. How do we hear God's voice if he doesn't speak audibly through vocal cords and sound waves that pass through our inner ears to our brains? One simple answer is that God doesn't have to do that, right? Because the Holy Spirit now lives in us, in the deepest parts of us, God has direct access to our inner world, Think about that for a second. God can access your mind stream, your thoughts, your desires, your emotions, and he could guide them by the power of the Spirit. So why would God have to speak audibly when he has direct access to our inner life? It's like Steve Jobs going out and yelling out to one of his neighbors. Why would he do that when he invented the iPhone and can text them? Doesn't make any sense. So we do this, we do this all the time in communication, right? Like if I just tell you right now, think about a beautiful sunset. What, like what pops into your mind? A beautiful sunset. I just manipulated your thought life. <laughs> I just guided your thought life. Isn't that crazy? It's how we do communication. And that's what God does in our own lives as well. This is the heart of listening prayer. Right, it's quieting ourselves to prayerfully listen to the ways that God is guiding our inner life, what he's saying through our interior life, our desires, our thoughts, our emotions, our bodies, our experiences, our imagination. This is what spiritual writers in the way of Jesus have just called listening prayer. It's a way to sense what God is communicating to us that runs deeper than our five senses. I love the way that Mark Thibodeau lists some different terms that spiritual writers have used over the years to describe these interior movements of the soul. When we sense through listening to our lives what God is communicating to us, these can be called graces. Words, phrases, images, experiences, moods, insights, motions, questions. Sometimes God will just put a person on your in your imagination, that's not an accident. He wants you to pray for them. And this practice of quieting ourselves is important because God often speaks in what Elijah experienced in 1 Kings 19 as the still small voice, which can also be translated the sound of gentle 
silence. He wasn't in the whirlwind. He wasn't in the big dramatic fire. He was in the still small voice. I love the way that Mother Teresa says that God speaks in the silence of the heart. Listening is the beginning of prayer. Two quick examples of people who are, are renowned for listening prayer. This is a common practice in the church, especially outside of America, right? When you go to the East, I mean, the Eastern Orthodox stream of the church has been doing this from the very beginning, quieting themselves through listening prayer to hear the voice of God. But two examples that I just wanted to bring before you can read, them, read more about them uh, if you wanna Google it later. But um, the first is a guy named Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew was a man famously known for listening to God's voice. And he had this powerful encounter with God after the war in 1952 where he was sitting on a canal. He had this chronic ankle injury and he felt this call to missions to go overseas and preach the gospel and make disciples. But he had this injury and he couldn't really, he had this limp and he's he like, God, I just feel inadequate. I'm not educated. And I had this chronic ankle pain from this war injury. And so he surrendered himself to God and he said, God, I will take a physical step with this ankle if you will show me where you want me to go. And in that moment, he said he felt this violent twist. And all of a sudden, when he put pressure down on the ankle, he was healed. And this was the first physical step towards him stepping onto the mission field. And he started sneaking Bibles into communist countries. He, was, uh, he wrote a book called The God Smuggler, which became his nickname, and his ministry, Open Doors, has delivered millions of Bibles to Christians in the underground church, and it just started with slowing down to listen for God's voice and then obeying his voice. Uh, another uh, woman that I really admire and appreciate so much in this respect is Priscilla, Priscilla Shirer. She's a well-known author and Bible teacher, and she argues that hearing the voice of God ruins Christianity as usual. Once you have sensed his voice, you can't go back to life as before. So she spends daily time in listening to prayer, opening up scripture, and the primary way she does that is by just praying scripture back to God, praying for God to give her what she calls uh, one of three lights. A green light, like get up and go. A yellow light, like okay, stay close and wait and discern. Or a red light, which is like, hey, stop and run away. And she said it's sort of like a pilot bringing a plane in, waiting for all those lights to align in just the right way to know that she's hearing the voice of God. And I could give you thousands of other stories about people, ordinary people who practice this on a daily basis, hearing God's voice and seeking to respond. Now, I realize that if you're new to listening for God's voice that you may feel intimidated or suspicious with some of these approaches, right? Like, what if I do this and I don't hear anything? Or what if I do this and I hear the wrong voice? Can't trust every voice? Can't this be dangerous? Doesn't this open you to the demonic? The answer is yes, of course, right? Of course. You do, of course it can be dangerous. Of course you can hear the wrong voice. And, and that's why the New Testament talks so much about the need for discernment. What John and 1 John calls discerning the spirits. Sifting through our internal experiences, thoughts, feelings, desires, and impressions to determine what is God's voice, what is our voice, and even worse, what is the voice of our enemy. St. Ignatius, who developed a whole prayer school and teaching out of this, calls this the discernment of spirits. I'm calling it just the discernment of voices. Listening prayer should always be followed by a process of reviewing what we think we're hearing when we listen to our lives in God's presence. How do you grow in discernment? Discernment, I would argue, sharpens with intimacy and maturity in the context of community. A relationship of growing intimacy with God is the only qualification for discernment, right? Like a child with their parent, 
or a seasoned married couple, when you spend time, or like an animal trainer, when you spend time with someone, you just get to know them and you get to hear and understand who they are and their heart and their intentions. And the closer you're connected, the more your relationship matures through different seasons, the easier it is to recognize a familiar voice. Like in that Super Nintendo world, there's a lot going on, but you know what? I could recognize that my voice could recognize my voice because we spent so much time together. And that's how it is with God. Jesus's voice should be increasingly recognizable with a tone and a weight and a volume and a content that should become more familiar to his people over time. And then of course we need to process that out in community, not by ourselves. So as we close our time and we go to communion here, I wanna just give you two prayer practices. We wanna teach each week on prayer and then give you something to take home to help you in your own journey with prayer. And I wanna give you two practices to help strengthen your listening, right? The first one is called Lectio Divina, and we've taught on this a bunch. I've got some teachings back in the series on the Psalms last year, if you wanna do a, more, a, a deeper dive. That word Lectio Divina uh, just means spiritual or divine reading. It's complementary to Bible study. It deepens and enriches Bible study, and it essentially just seeks to answer the question, how is God coming to me through this text of Scripture? The early church fathers and mothers, St. Benedict, all the monastics, and really throughout church history have used this as the primary way of reading scripture and listening to God's voice. It's just reading scripture slowly and prayerfully and contemplatively, listening for the voice of God. There's four basic movements that you can do in five minutes or 50 minutes in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening. It just starts with reading the scripture slowly a couple times through, asking what does the text say? looking for a phrase that might jump out or a word that jumps out at you, something that God wants to highlight for you. And then spending time, secondly, reflecting on that. What is, what is God saying to me, holding my story and God's story, reflecting on my past experiences, reflecting on the larger narrative of scripture, reflecting on how Jesus might fulfill this and how the spirit poured out of me might be empowering me towards this. It's just taking time to reflect and integrate what God's saying through this passage and then respond, how should I respond, right? Because it's not enough just to resonate with the text. We, we love to resonate with things, right? We actually are called to obey it and to put it into practice. And then of course, resting is the last movement. How can I just relax and abide with Jesus? That's Lectio Divina, that's praying scripture. The second practice is of course, listening prayer. And that's actually just how I wanna invite you to end our time here, okay? I wanna take just two or three minutes and I wanna invite you into a space of listening prayer right here, okay? Something that you can do right here for two minutes, you can do at home for 20. Um, and so I just wanna invite you to go ahead and put your, put your stuff away. We'll close with this and I've got a prayer to, to conclude our time and bridge us into communion. I just want you to take a couple deep breaths again. Get in a posture that's comfortable, quiet your mind and your heart. A passage of scripture that I'll use often to guide myself into listening prayer is the prayer of David, which I just find so fascinating. The most powerful man in Israel, the one who had access to a military, the one who has all of this wisdom and friendship with God. Here's David's strategy when, he, when he's under stress and he's dealing with opposition. He says this in Psalm 131, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child. Just invite God to calm your soul like a weaned child with its mother. Dependent, utterly dependent on God. 
God, I need you. God, would you be my help? Would you be my strength? Would you do for me what I can't do for myself? Would you speak to me words I can't give myself? Ask the Holy Spirit to come and speak to you here in just these quiet moments. Wait quietly with a surrendered heart. Maybe imagine yourself in a boat in the middle of a lake. And at the bottom of that lake is a trove of treasures waiting to be discovered. Imagine yourself gazing quietly into the deep waters. The surface of the lake is so calm. And then all of a sudden you notice a treasure floating to the surface. God is coming to you, maybe with a word or a phrase, a scripture, a thought, a metaphor, a picture, maybe a series of pictures, a short film, a feeling in your heart, an emotion, a sensation in your body. person that he just laying on your heart right now. Just go ahead and grab that treasure and bring it into your boat. Just sit with it for a second. Ask God what he might want to say to you through. Whether God spoke something specific to you or maybe just nothing, maybe it's blank. Would you just take a moment to thank God for his presence? Listening prayer is not about outcomes or results. It's about intimacy. He's so near to you. God in Jesus Christ has come to us. He lived a life that we couldn't live, died the death that we should have died. He he rose again. He extends mercy and forgiveness and grace. He saved us. He's rescued us. He's sealed us with his Holy Spirit. Just take a moment to thank him for his presence. Invite him to speak. Continue to do this work in your life this week. Let me close our time with this prayer from St. Teresa of Avila. Just hear these words and make this your own prayer to the Lord this week as you seek to listen for his voice and trust and obey him. Lord, grant that I may allow myself to be guided by you. Always follow your plans and perfectly accomplish your holy will. Grant that in all things, great and small, today and all the days of my life, I may do whatever you require of me. Help me respond to the slightest prompting of your grace so that I may be your trustworthy instrument for your honor. May your will be done in time and in eternity by me, in me, 